the world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Good morning, church. All right, turn in our Bibles to Daniel. It's all, words will also be up on the screen. I'm going to lead us in reading Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Thank you, Kevin. All right, well, hey, good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? We good? Awesome, awesome. If you're new here, I haven't met you yet. My name is Nick. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And uh, as you're probably well aware of this point, we're starting a new sermon series uh, going through the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel 1, uh, 1 through 7, or turn those Bibles on. And uh, some of you are familiar with the Daniel story, right? You're, you're excited about this sermon series. You know the story of Daniel's in the, Daniel in the lion's den, the fourth man in the fire, the writing on the wall, or, or the epic prophecies of the coming of the Son of Man and the 70 weeks, so on and so forth. But for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, this Old Testament book that we're going to be going through for the next 12 weeks is a book about how Daniel and three of his friends were ripped from their hometown of Jerusalem, taken into exile in Babylon, indoctrinated in pagan ways, and then commissioned to serve in the palace of the king. And our theme for these next 12 weeks for this sermon series is three words, faithfulness in exile, faithfulness in exile, because the dilemma that sort of plays out in this narrative is will these four exiled teenagers stay faithful to Yahweh while living on enemy soil? And so for the next 12 weeks, as we're going to be looking uh, kind of through the lens of the book of Daniel with this theme, Faithfulness and Exile, we're also going to be looking at the 21st century church, you and I, the people of God, the bride of, uh, of Christ. And what we're going to be looking at is how you and I can stay faithful to our King Jesus while we too are living on foreign soil. And you might be asking yourself, okay, Nick, what foreign soil are you talking about? I'm American, right? 
I live in America. It took me five minutes to get here. I didn't take a plane from, you know, overseas to get here. I am home. We are not on foreign soil. What are you talking about? My response to that, if you were here today and a follower of Jesus Christ, if you were to pull out your wallet and look at your license and look at the address on that license, that address is your Airbnb. That address is a temporary stay, a temporary residence on foreign soil because that's not the church's permanent home. And so the truth of the matter is that this church here in America and globally is on foreign soil because the bride of Christ is not home yet. And so what we learn through Scripture, this is not political, this is biblical, is that we're not citizens of America first and foremost. Listen, we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God to America because our true citizenship is in heaven and the king that we pledge allegiance to is King Jesus. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Amen. And so whether the church is in the U.S., the the U.K., or Uzbekistan, that church is standing on foreign soil because we're not home yet. And so this theme, before we dive into Daniel, uh, kind of set the stage for this theme of faithfulness in exile, we're going to do a brief overview of kind of some New Testament scriptures that talk about the church's identity as being in exile. And so Colossians 1, 13 through 14, says this about the work that Jesus Christ came to do. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What we're learning here in Colossians 1.13 is that part of the work that Jesus Christ came to do was to change our citizenship. Do we realize that? That there was a transfer that took place when He called us home. He, to, to be in Christ, to be in union with Christ, that unshakable union with Jesus, is, is just as much to be in Christ as being ripped out of the kingdom of darkness and adopted into the kingdom of God. And so what we learn throughout Scripture is that really there's, there's really only two kingdoms that really matter. Nations are great. We're called to go be ambassadors to the nations uh, on behalf of the kingdom of God. And so we go, we love the nations, we, 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 we see that the nations thrive where we're at, but in Scripture we see that there's really two kingdoms that are, that are of, of importance for us. One is the kingdom of heaven and the other is the kingdom of darkness. And what we learn in Ephesians 2, I don't have enough time to uh, uh, talk about Ephesians 2, but in that, I encourage you to read it, uh, we see that this fallen, sin-soaked world is currently ruled by the prince of the power of the air for the time being. The devil himself, Scripture describes as a ruler of this world until Jesus finally and fully casts him out in John 12. Okay? And so what we learn here is that it's not just that we're kind of on foreign soil, but we're actually in a way kind of on on enemy soil. And so now until Christ fully and finally casts the devil out, there's this clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God. And we, the church, are called to go on the offensive and push back darkness with the light and the love of Jesus until we go and see him face to face. Those are the two kingdoms that matter. And and just a quick side note, if you're wrestling um, uh, with us talking about supernatural darkness in two two kingdoms, I got news for you. and when uh, Not news for you, but just want to encourage you in this, is that when our Western intellectual rationalistic reading of God's word comes to clashes with the plain reading of God's Word, the truth of God's Word, guess, guess which one wins? God's Word does, right? God's Word does. And Scripture clearly articulates that for the time being, this world has a temporary ruler, and it's the devil himself. And 1 Peter 2, uh, 11 says this, Beloved, the beloved of God is the bride of Christ. Beloved, 
I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So there's two things that Peter is encouraging the early church to do. One is he's saying, know your identity, church. Know your identity. Know that you're a sojourner and know that you're an exile. Know that you're not home yet, right? That's what he's pointing them to, their identity. A sojourner is a temporary resident, a stranger, a traveler who dwells in a place for a time. And then an exile is one who is separated from their homeland. So Peter is encouraging the church, know your identity. And then secondly, know that there's a war being waged against your soul. And that war that's being waged against your soul is to change your citizenship. And what I mean by that is this, is that the end goal of every temptation we face is the enemy trying to turn exiles into citizens. Every temptation we face is the enemy himself trying to turn you as an exile into a citizen. See, what the devil wants to do is he wants us to fall head over heels in love with this world and the things of this world so that we call this world our home and not foreign soil. And the brother of Jesus, James, puts it this way. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, when we understand the clash of two kingdoms, this verse makes a whole lot more sense, right? You're going to say, man, that's pretty harsh. Well, hey, you know, if you've been reading through the CBR reading plan, you know that we just read through Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and, and uh, Jesus says this in Luke 14, And after I read this, I was reading this, and in my journal, I go, man, Jesus goes for the jugular. Watch this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot, cannot be my disciple, Right? And uh, what we learn there is church, man, there is no middle ground because, because we're the bride of Christ. What that means is we are in a covenant with our faithful king. We are in a covenant with God and, and, and a covenant relationship like marriage is that when you stand before your bride-to-be on that wedding day, what you're doing there is, yes, pledging your faithfulness to them, but you're also renouncing everybody else. You tracking with me? And that's what Jesus is saying is your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength is to be wedded to me and me alone. And therefore, you have to renounce love in all of the places, first and foremost. And it's not harsh. It's, it's the fact that God is so in love with his church. Jesus is so in love with his bride that he will not share us with anyone else. And so the dilemma, going back to the theme of the sermon, what we're going to be looking at, the dilemma of the 21st century church plays that you and I, the dilemma that faces us is, man, how are we going to remain faithful to our faithful king while living on foreign soil? So that's the, the overarching theme we're going to be looking at, uh, diving into Daniel. And the big idea of our sermon series is, is this, is that the key to our faithfulness while living in a land far from home is looking to and loving our faithful king who promises us that while we are presently in exile, we are not orphans, but that he is always with us even to the end of the age. And so my hope um, through this sermon series is that the church will be called home, this sermon series, that the Holy Spirit will do some awesome work of, of loosening our grip on, on things uh, that we shouldn't be holding on to, to too tightly, if you catch my drift. My hope, my hope is that the church will be called home and that we would, we would repent of and renounce trust in earthly kings and earthly kingdoms and put our trust in our faithful king and his glorious kingdom, right? And, and this is a political year, right? This is, an, sorry, an election year uh, uh, for, for us. 
And this is my hope. I'm not, I'm not going to be political, but my hope is just this, that whatever happens in November, the church won't be that shaken. Because our trust is not in earthly kings. And, and church, I got news for you. I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll stop here and then I'll whatever, but I don't think the church needs as much help as we think we do. You tracking with me? I think Jesus, our king, and his kingdom will advance no matter who's on the throne, no matter what nation we're in. This kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and it's moving, it's moving no matter who's on the throne. Okay? And so I'm not, and we'll, we're going to unpack this. I'm not, don't hear me say things I'm not saying. We should be actively engaged in the p- political sphere, transforming the nation we're in. We'll see that next week and throughout this series. But what I'm saying is, man, our hearts, our hearts, our hearts, there's one king. There's one kingdom that our hearts are tied to. And listen, it's a, it's a far better king and a far better kingdom. And it's a kingdom that will never be shaken. And we're going to reign forever in that kingdom. And our hope, our hope is, man, let's go advance advance that glorious kingdom against darkness until Jesus returns. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into Daniel here. Heavenly Father, I just, I just thank you for your faithfulness. We just open up our hands or raise our hands, like we were talking about singing this, this morning, of the fact that um, we serve a faithful God who in, even in spite of our wavering, uh, your, your, your faithfulness is unthinkable in a lot of ways, because our hearts are so fickle. We always try to uh, uh, bring in others to this covenant relationship, and, uh, and yet your word teaches us that while we were still sinners, our backs turned to you, rebels against you, that Christ, you went to the cross on our behalf to call us home, to call us home to our good Father who loves us, who went to great lengths, who went to great lengths to rip us, rip us out of a sinking ship, out of the kingdom of darkness, and adopting us declaring us as citizens of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that reigns and rules forever in love. And so we just say yes and amen and thank you. And I pray uh, right now with the preaching of your word that, God, that you would be so glorified, that you would increase in our hearts and our minds and our souls, and that I would, I would decrease, and that, Holy Spirit, you would, you would speak and you would move, and that you would, um, you would transform our minds and our hearts and, and Holy Spirit, that you do what you do best is you would, you would help us see Jesus as the truer and better king. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, verse 1 through 2. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, uh, don't read out loud with me, but read along with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So we're going to stop right there. So what's happening here, quick quick history lesson, is that the year is 605 BC. There's this Babylonian empire, modern-day Iraq, which has arisen as a dominating force in the Middle East. Uh, they have been sweeping westward with their eyes set on displacing Egypt as the dominating force in the region. And so you have this clash of two superpowers, and you have this kingdom, the southern kingdom of the people of God, Judah, caught kind of in the middle. And so we see here that Judah, Judah was kind of a stop along the way, and they the capital city of Jerusalem was now besieged by Babylonian forces led by Nebuchadnezzar. And so this Babylonian impression of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, happened in stages over multiple years, starting in 605 BC and then culminating in 587 BC 
when eventually Jerusalem got burned to the ground, the walls were destroyed, and there was a mass deportation of the people of God to uh, Babylon. But this is kind of the first fruits of that. And so what we see here with this siege is, in a way, the white flag was raised in Jerusalem. Judah now had become a puppet state of Babylon, and they had to pay a tribute and taxes to show their loyalty to Babylon, and that was paid through the temple treasury, right? We see that the temple of God in Jerusalem was kind of ransacked, and those temple artifacts were now placed in the temple of the Babylonian gods. Again, we see a clash of kingdoms there, the people of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And the question we need to ask is this, is how in the world did Judah, the people of God, the southern kingdom, how did Judah and Jerusalem get to this point in their history? And in verse 2, we learn an important lesson about who God is and what he's like. In verse 2, when we read, the Lord gave. The Lord gave. Right there in the text. And you might be saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought it was Babylon besieged. What's all this talk about the Lord gave? Well, from a human perspective, yes, it was Babylon besieged. But on another plane, it was the Lord who gave. And here's the first thing we learn about God that we will see throughout Daniel. We'll see this throughout Daniel. is God's sovereignty over history. What that, what that means is that our God is a sovereign Lord who in a very mysterious way is in control over the free choices of man. And what that means is this, is that Bob, Babylon would be held morally responsible for their violence and their wickedness against Judah, and yet it was God who ultimately gave Judah into their hands. And quick disclaimer, God is perfect righteousness, so he cannot be charged with evil, but in a mysterious way, he is in control of the situation, working it out for his redemptive purposes. Are there any heads exploding right now? They should be if they're not, right? This is confusing to us because, listen, oftentimes when we think we can, we can put God in a box and arrive, like we, we think that the incomprehen- God is incomprehensible, but he's not unknowable. In his grace, he's, he's, he's revealed himself. We know God, but he's incomprehensible. So there's never going to come a time where we arrive and we say, oh, I got this whole God thing figured out. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. So we humble ourselves, and when our rationalistic, you know, pea-sized brains conflict again with God's word, it's God's word that is the truth that we submit to, right? And so this theme of God's sovereignty over the wicked choices of, of, of mankind is, is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. I'm not making this up. This is from Genesis to Revelation. We see this, the story of Joseph in Genesis. He's sold into slavery, wicked brothers doing wicked things to him. And then that, that whole story comes full circle where Joseph is able to look at his brother and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That God was, God was working out your evil choices for his redemptive purposes. How about the cross of Jesus Christ? I got news for you. The, 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 the redemptive plan of God was not a cosmic roll of the dice by the Trinitarian Godhead. It wasn't like, I hope this thing works out. No, what we see was God's sovereign control over the wickedness and the evil of human men, crucifying the very Son of God, and then yet God, I mean, how redeeming was that? His sovereign control, how he used what men use for evil, he used for good, reconciling countless, countless sons and daughters back to the king through that. And then Romans 8.28, right? We all love Romans 8.28, that God works out all things together for good who are those for those who are called according to his purpose. So this theme is woven throughout Scripture. That, um, and this is, this is what I would say, because I know that um, this might be uh, a, tough, a tough thing for you to wrestle with. 
as it should be. But what I want to posit is this. If God is not in control of all of this, who in the world is? Right? And listen, and listen, if God isn't in sovereign control, then nobody is, and that thought should terrify us. That, shot, that, that thought should terrify us more than the confusion of wrestling with this doctrine of that man will be held morally responsible for their free choices, and yet God somehow is sovereignly in control, working out all things for his redemptive purposes. And so we find in this attribute of God, his sovereignty, we find, read sovereignty and read a sweet comfort to the soul. A sweet comfort. That even in the midst of the confusion of the exile that was taking place in Judah, they knew that their God was sovereign, right? In the same way, God's sovereignty is a sweet comfort to us that, hey, the Lord is holding the whole world in his hands. I don't know what he's up to, but he, sure, he surely does, right? And I'm, gonna, I'm going to submit to his word and his sovereignty. So God is sovereign over history. We see that throughout his word. And the second thing we learn about God is this church is that, man, our God, he keeps his word. He keeps his word. Uh, in the old covenant, right, we're talking about covenant relationships between us and God. There were blessings for obedience that the people of God were well aware of. Blessings for obedience, but there are also curses for disobedience. And so if we were to ask the question, why did the Lord give Judah into the hands of a pagan nation? Well, it wasn't as much God's choice as it was Judah's choice. They refused to repent of unspeakable wickedness over generations. I'm talking decades here. I'm talking years and years of refusing to repent. What we know about Judah is that there was unspeakable wickedness that took place with multiple kings over multiple years. Example one, I could go, I had, a, I had a lot here for the sake of time. You can thank me, I had to take it out. But let's just look at the resume of King Manasseh of Judah in 2 Kings 21. What do we know about King Manasseh who ruled for roughly 55 years in Jerusalem? is that he established pagan demonic worship of Baal, Molech, and Asherah in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And you want to know how you offered worship to those gods? Well, it was unspeakable sexual immorality and burning your kids alive in fire. That's how you offered your worship to these demonic deities in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then God, in his grace, he sends prophet after prophet, after prophet to the kings of Judah and the people of Judah, literally. And what happens was Manasseh, King Manasseh, slaughtered them all. And so it's so much so that in Scripture it says that the streets were filled, filled with innocent blood. The very voices that God was saying, repent or judgment is coming, repent or judgment is coming, those prophets were killed, were slaughtered. And so it wasn't God's choice as much as it was Judah's choice. He gave them ample warning and opportunities to repent because he's slow to anger and he's bounding in steadfast love, right? If you study the, the, the history here of Judah before, I mean, given decades to repent. And so listen, if you were in Jerusalem at that time and you were to look out, climb a tower, look out and see the flags and the armies of Babylon surrounding you, you'd say, oh yeah, this day was coming. God stays true to his word. I should have, this is no surprise. Right? We, we, we forgot that whole repentance thing actually turns away uh, wrath, that these prophetic words from the prophets were conditional upon the people's repentance. Isaiah 39, 5 through 7, this was Hezekiah, again, years before where we're at now. 
And Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who, who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so simply uh, put is that God kept his word. There should have been no surprise to Judah. They were, war- they were warned a hundred times over that this day was coming if they, excuse me, if they didn't repent. And so for the parents... For the parents in this room, uh, when I became a parent roughly three and a half years ago, all of a sudden, this father-son-daughter uh, relationship helped me understand the father heart of God. And so what was so funny is I had this illustration in my sermon, but this morning I'm literally hearing as I'm you know, getting my hair cut ready, shaving my head, uh, I hear in another room my wife saying, don't rip out your sister's hair. <laughs> you know. And so I'll share a purely hypothetical conversation that I've had with uh, my daughters before. Listen. You have two options when you rip each other's hair out. Two options. You you can say sorry and repent and change your behavior, right? That's option number one. It's a great option. Repentance is a great option, right? And listen, listen, daughter, I want you to repent. I get no delight in disciplining you. Option number two is exile, right? Call it timeout, right? That's option number two. If you don't change your ways, there's a timeout coming. And so listen, listen, one, one, this is your choice. This is your choice, not mine. Option number two, I love you. That's why I'm disciplining you. If I did not care, I would not care how you treated each other. But because I love you, I as a good father or you know, as a loving father cannot be at peace with you two ripping each other's hair out. And I kind of have an ax to grind with hair being ripped out of heads. Okay? You catch my drift. And so, and so what we see with this is um, the father heart of God. If you were to read Jeremiah chapters 1 through 14, you would see God's heart uh, to the people of God saying, I don't want this to happen. I never wanted this to happen. It was your choice. It was your choice. I told you time and time again, but you refused to repent. And that's what we learn in Scripture. And a quick side note here before we move on is that God keeps his word. And I think a lot of times in the church, man, we, we, we say yes and amen, Uh, God will not be mocked. He keeps his blessings to his people. But in Galatians 6 and Hebrews 12, Galatians 6, we all know know Galatians 6, you reap what you sow. God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. In Hebrews 12, as the Lord disciplines those he loves. Well, I got news for for the church today, and I've seen this in my own life, is that if we have a a sin in our lives that we refuse to repent of, God keeps his word, and he's going to discipline us, right? And so we want to, you know, that's that's what's so interesting about the you know, the prosperity gospel is, oh, it's all about the promises of God and God keeps his word and he's faithful. Yes, he's a loving God who showers blessings upon us. But you better believe if there is, if there is willful unrepentance and we are mocking God saying, I, my life will look no different if I hold on to this sin, uh, God, God's, God's going to do something about that. He keeps his word, right? He will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. So it's a challenge to us to continually check our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal those areas where we need to repent so we can have a, a deeper uh, a fellowship with the Father. So sin wouldn't get in the way that we love God so much, we wouldn't let sin get in the way. And so returning to our text, uh, the town is besieged, the white flag goes up, uh, Judah is now a puppet state to Babylon, the temple vessels are uh, uh, ripped from uh, the temple. And this is what happens next in verse 3 through 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, uh, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. 
The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to, be, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. It's a mouthful there. Good names to name your kids. All right, a uh, common practice a common practice that we see in the ancient Near East was conquering kings would take the best and the brightest from their conquered foes to both weaken their enemies and strengthen their own ranks. This is how Tremper Longman puts it about what's taking place here, is that Nebuchadnezzar's purpose with Daniel's and Daniel and others was to train them in Babylonian ways for political and propaganda purposes. That these members of the elite classes in Judah would become enamored enamored with Babylonian ways and customs and either return to positions of influence at home or stay in Babylon in important positions. So we see that for the Babylonians, this was a win-win for them. Um, either they would send them back completely indoctrinated to go win more proselytes to Babylonian ways, or they would rise to influence in the Babylonian Empire and serve the interests of the empire. Um, so in our text, we're introduced to four teenagers. These teenagers that were named from Judah uh, uh, are of royal lineage. Most likely, they're descendants of King Hezekiah himself. And they had what this text teaches us. They had both the brains and the brawn to stand before the king and serve in his palace, and I couldn't help but chuckle at myself that if someone were to come and siege Springfield, Virginia, and, and want the best and the brightest, they look at my SAT score and say, hey, Nick, you can stay in Springfield. We're going we're gonna to look elsewhere. Made myself chuckle. Anyways, thought I'd share that. Anyways, um, so those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they're the key figures we're going to be looking at in the book of of Daniel. And so these three teenagers, imagine this, imagine this. They're ripped from their homes. Ripped from their homes. Now in a completely foreign land, the land of their enemies, their nation and God apparently defeated, and they're now placed in this intense three-year indoctrination process. Like a three-year indoctrination process that happened in kind of two parts. The first part was renaming all of these guys. Each one of these teenagers got a new name. Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those are pagan Babylonian names. Why were those names important? Because all of these names, if you were to break up what it meant in Akkadian, uh, uh, in, in the, in the, the uh, native language of the Babylonians, these all invoke the help of Babylonian gods. The gods of Marduk, Bel, and Nebo. Finding Nebo. Okay, sorry. A transfer, and so what's happening here, what's happening here is there's a transfer of citizenship you guys tracking with this? They're taking the people of God from Judah and, they're, and they're, they're transferring their citizenship to the kingdom of Babylon. So that what they're saying there is that the Babylonian gods are now who you belong to. These are the gods you worship. These are the gods who own you. These are the gods you love and worship and serve. And a quick side note, again, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, is that every temptation you and I face is an attempt to rename you and reclaim you. Often the lies that wreck our worlds for the people of God are lies about what, that we believe about our identity, right? Whenever a lot of times the temptations we face are, are just uh, um, identity statements. I am blank. And, and, and if what follows I am is not a beloved daughter, a beloved child of God, redeemed by Jesus, covered 
my sins forgiven, my trespass is not held against me. Right? If it's not something to that effect, it's a lie. And you shouldn't believe it, but the enemy's always coming after our identity, always coming after our identity, renaming us so that we get our focus off of our, our kingdom identity, right? So one, there's a renaming, and then the second stage is a complete reprogramming of these, of these young teenagers, right? A complete reprogramming, an indoctrination. They're, they're, they're now enlisted in a three-year Bachelor of Arts uh, program in Babylonian studies, right? Learning the language and literature of Babylon. Some of the classes that they would have been trained in were, would have been the heroic epics of Babylon, the religious myths, even the economic tablets, um, even the Akkadian language, and also the kind of the mantic arts of divination and omen reading, right? Kind of the supernatural pagan worship they would have been uh, trained in as well. So there's this reprogramming that's taking place to these young teenagers. And they're basically saying, I don't care what you believed in Judah, but here's the truth. Here's what you believe now. Here are the gods you serve, and here's how you worship these gods. But what's so interesting here, it's smart smart from the Babylonians' perspective, they didn't just go after the intellect. They didn't just go after the head. They went after their hearts. Went after their hearts. And, And what we learn here too, man, is they tempted these teenagers with some of the finest food these guys have probably ever tasted. Some of the finest wine. It was literally food that was served to the king. And the temptation there, the temptation there to these teenagers is this, isn't Babylon and all our Babylonian ways so much better than Judah? Aren't our Babylonian gods so much greater than Yahweh? Look at what, look at what our gods can give you. Look at what Yahweh gave. You see, that's the man, they're going for they're going for the head and, and the heart. And so a couple of applications here to land the plane to our hearts is, is isn't this how the enemy gets us, right? Especially in the American church, the church in the West, is oftentimes the enemy's attacks are not outright persecution that we face. Uh, it's it's not the vinegar, if you will, of persecution, it's the honey, the honey of the wealth and the comfort and the health of the American lifestyle, right? preaching to myself here. The enemy lulls us into a sleep, dangling the, comfort, dangling the comforts of the Western lifestyle in front of us, doing his best to get our eyes off of Jesus and his kingdom and get our focus on Babylon. And he's after our hearts and he's trying to get us to fall in love with Babylon so that we declare this world as our home. And the only way to combat the food and wine that Babylon offers is to taste and see that the Lord is better than anything this world can offer you, right? Application number two is this, is that foreign soil isn't neutral soil. Foreign soil isn't neutral soil. The Babylonians were waging war on Daniel and his friends through intentional indoctrination, daily challenging their allegiance to Yahweh. And the reason I mention that is often I think the church in America thinks that we're home and thinks that we're on neutral ground. When, when biblically speaking, we're not home yet, we're, we're exiles. We're, we're far from home. And, um, and so the reason I share that is that I think there's this assumption in the church in the West that we can be completely immersed in the Western world, not being in the slightest discerning in what we consume. Not in the, like, not in the slightest discerning with what we watch, what we listen to, um, what we're reading not realizing that, hey, we're not, not realizing that, like, we, we need to have an awareness, awareness that, that, of this, of this. 
But the foreign soil you and I are currently standing on is always seeking to shape us, to change us, to mold us into the image of Babylon. Right? And so if we're not actively, if we're not actively renewing our minds in God's word and prayer and praise and worship, the truth of God, and renewing our hearts and worship to him, the heads and heart, if we're not protecting our head and our heart, keeping our focus on Jesus, keeping our affections for Jesus, listen, there's no neutral territory, right? This world that we're in, even the American culture, is continually pressing in on the church to mold us, to, to, to say, hey, isn't Babylon better than what Jesus has to offer? We need to have an awareness of that. And so one, are we aware? And then two, are we realizing that when we go and have our quiet times, that that's a declaration of war, that's a renewing that's taking place of our minds, that's a renewing that's taking place in our hearts. And two, it might help us to just pray a quick prayer before we start our days as Jesus, I want to be faithful to you. As you have been faithful to me, help me to be faithful to you and no one or nothing else. What you call me to let go of, I'll let go of. What you call me to speak and say, I'll do, so on and so forth. And so I'll wrap up with this. Um, the crux of our narrative, what we'll be looking at for the next 12 weeks, is will these four teenagers remain faithful to Yahweh in exile? Because the truth of the matter is this, is they had, listen, they had, a re, they had a myriad of reasons to jump into the deep end of Babylonian ways. A myriad of reasons to just, to just to jump, jump into the deep end of everything Babylon had to offer them. Because for all intents and purposes, it seemed like Yahweh was nowhere to be found. That they were taken from their families, potentially never to see them again, probably wrestling with an avalanche of doubts about who God was and promised to be. But what we'll see in the coming weeks is that although they were exiled, they weren't orphans. You guys tracking with me? Although this, this, this siege that happened to Jerusalem, it was disciplined, but it wasn't God deserting his people. And we'll see this in the coming weeks. Yahweh was still their God. He was still faithful to them in exile. He was with them from start to finish. So any faithfulness that we see in these four teenagers was only a response to their knowledge of the sure and steady faithfulness of their God. And so whether it was the green pastures of Judah or the valley of the shadow of death in Babylon, the Lord, their Yahweh was their shepherd. He was at their right hand and therefore they would not be shaken. And so what we see, man, is that their hope their hope, roughly 2,500 years ago, is our hope today. That our hope rests securely not in our faithfulness, in our fickleness, but in the faithfulness of our King Jesus, who chose to be exiled, who chose to be banished, who chose to be forsaken on that cross so that you and I could be called home. You and I could become citizens of heaven, no longer exiled, no longer walking in darkness, but being a people who have seen the light and the love of God. And we're going to reign with this Jesus in perfect fellowship forever. Our faithfulness, our faithfulness is first and foremost just a response to his faithfulness in our lives. That's the God we serve. Great is his faithfulness throughout the ages to us. He is both the author of our salvation and rest assured today, he is the finisher of our salvation. He's going to see this thing in my heart to the end, and he's going to see it in your heart to the end as well. And so what I want to do, uh, we're closing here. What I want to do is just make space for us to go to the Lord in prayer. Um, so uh, I'm going to be silent for a minute or two and just ask that, you know, you can do what you want, but if you're feeling led, um, I would ask you to pray and present your heart to King Jesus and ask if there's any area in your heart that you have a white-knuckled grip on that you're refusing 
to hand over to your king. And once that, once the Holy Spirit maybe reveals that to you, would you hand that over to Jesus? But also ask the beautiful thing about uh, uh, coming to the Lord is we don't have to come, uh, we were not left the way we come to him, right? We come and we say, hey, forgive me of this. I repent of this. Now, now, now I'm going to receive your forgiveness and then turn that, that cleansing that comes after the confession into gratitude and praise and thankfulness, thanking God for his faithfulness throughout the ages in your life. Does that make sense? So may it be, yes, adoration. Yes, maybe confession, thanksgiving, and just praise to God. So I want to just create space for you guys to do that, and then I'll close us in prayer. your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, says Jesus. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Father, we're just so grateful that where we are is where you choose to dwell and where you want to dwell. That's so much so that you're even preparing a place for us, a better place, so that when we feel the weight of this world, the oppression of what it's like to be an exile, to be a sojourner, that the song that sings in our soul are these words that you comfort us in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. I go before you. I am with you now and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And so uh, we come before you and just say thank you for your undeserved grace, your undeserved mercy, your undeserved love for us, that you are a faithful king, your faithful God. When we were wayward and drifting, Lord, you marched straight to the cross. You, you, you were not unfaithful, but you were faithful to your Father. And so we say thank you for that because it was your faithfulness that brought about our redemption. It was your obedience that reversed the curse of our disobedience. And so we bring praise and honor to you, Jesus, for the one who is faithful. We forsake any trust we put in ourselves. We forsake any trust of trying to, to, to claim that, that, that our faithfulness is meritorious towards our salvation, but we say it's you, you and you alone, Jesus, who is worthy of our praise. And may your church be called home today, and may your church be called home this sermon series. And Holy Spirit, uh, uh, blow us away 
with how awesome Jesus is and how much he loves us and what he's done for us and his faithfulness, that we can rest in that. We can rest in that. So we say thank you. You're worthy of all honor, all praise, all glory. You make it, Jesus, when we see you for who you truly are, you make it so easy to renounce everything because you are the truer and better king and your kingdom is the eternal king, kingdom that will never perish, it will never be shaken. And so Holy, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is and who he's truly been to us so that it's, it's almost easy for us to renounce the things of this world because we've tasted and seen that you are far better than anything Babylon can offer us. So we come before you grateful. We come before you declaring you're worthy of everything that we could ever give you. And pray all of this, Jesus, in your beautiful and in your faithful name. Amen.